1: Hi, my name is Rachel Stewart. I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Kent. I'm here today with Dr Nikki Lane, who's going to talk to us about her book. And this is the latest in our series of sex, sexualities and sex work. So Nikki, can you tell us who you are, uh, where you are and what your area of expertise is, please?
0: Sure. I'm Dr. Nikki Lane. I, um, I have a PhD in anthropology with a concentration in race, gender, and social justice from American University in Washington, D.C. I lived in Washington, D.C. for a little over a decade, and I am now in Atlanta, Georgia, where I'm from, and I'm an assistant professor of Black queer studies in the Comparative Women's Studies program at Spelman College. I... Uh, I like to describe myself as an interdisciplinary scholar trained as a cultural and linguistic anthropologist. But to be honest, I tend to, I tend to do a little bit of everything. And in some ways that can be very difficult, but in other ways it is really exciting and it can be really dynamic and it can create opportunities to do work across uh, across a broad spectrum of topics. I really uh, tend to view my primary areas of research as black queer theory, black feminist theory, American popular culture and issues within the African diaspora. How that tends to culminate is in my interest in the way that black queer people in the United States use pop culture, how they create pop culture and what that popular culture has to say about issues of race, gender, and social justice, um, and how, you know, we often see cultural workers doing black queer theory and doing black feminist theory in real life. So that's ten- that tends to be how I like to think about my work. I have uh, published um, the, my current book ma- my, my, the current book manuscript that I'm working on. Um, It deals with the ways that Black lesbians in the United States have uh, found one another. So I'm tentatively calling the book How to Find a Black Lesbian, because I really am interested in the way that people go on searches for and find and locate Black lesbians in um, really over the past uh, century or so. So I'm really excited about that, that project. And the book that I wrote, Black Queer Work of Ratchet really inspires that. And it really um, it really is a culmination, I think, of all of the kind of intersecting ways that my research um, has tended to follow queer culture, pop culture and uh, Black queer theory and kind of doing it within a field of linguistic anthropology where it's usually not done. So if you find linguistic anthropologists, they're typically not studying Uh, issues of sexuality. They may study issues of race. They even may study issues of gender, but rarely are they interested in those intersections and rarely are they interested in issues of sexuality. So I've kind of found a unique way of kind of combining my interests in all of those things. And I'm really excited for this project and I'm excited for the work of other folks who are also increasingly um, joining the, joining the team, so to speak, of, of folks interested in language use and issues of sexuality, race, and gender.
1: Yeah. And that, that was a, you know, as I was reading the book and it flowed so easily, I'm like, this is so simple to read. Why has this not been written before? It's almost like, you know, it's, like, <laughs> it's not at all labored. It was just like a real pleasure <laughs> to read. So can you tell the audience about the word ratchet? Okay, common yeah. currency, common currency in my house, but not maybe in everyone's
0: house. It's so yes. Uh, so the word ratchet refers to you know I I I usually avoid and resist simple definitions of the word. Okay, so off off the bat, I typically don't like to define it because I think that it usually is a slippery word that has a lot of different meanings. People are saying it, but they're meaning a lot of different things. Now, the way that I defined it in the book tends to relate to a kind of multiple set of meanings that were often operating all at the same time. So, on the one hand, people use the word to refer to bad behavior, right? So, any form of bad behavior, typically bad behavior associated with Black people, right? That was how they tended to use the word. Now, it also refers to... uh, bad behavior that is done purposefully okay so bad behavior on purpose and and that bad behavior is done on purpose for the specific reason of pointing out the fact that whether or not someone is good or bad it really makes no difference like it I can do whatever I want it is so it's kind of like this statement of like I don't care what good or bad means in this instance, I'm going to do what I want to do for myself because I enjoy it and you're going to deal with it. Right. So it's that kind of statement. And it also refers to a lack of desire to even regard uh, notions of propriety. And the last way that I like to think about it is as a way of pointing out the boundaries of what is. Um, what is oftentimes kind of normative ways of thinking about black middle class behavior. So when you say something is ratchet, then you're pointing to the limit to the boundary around which that is around that which is appropriate in a particular context. And that usually refers to kind of these middle class ideologies and the kind of boundary work that it does um, around setting the stage uh, and the context for who and what is deemed socially appropriate at any given time.
1: So um, in the book, you, you, talk, uh, you, you talk about ratchet in the context of the development of American, uh, African-American English. Can you give us an overview of the way that African-American English is, has evolved?
0: Yeah, so African American English, uh, you know, is it's rooted and I think and I I credit here Marcelina Morgan here for my thinking around the way that African American language ideologies operate. But so I'm really following her work, but part of what she's thinking about and part of how I'm approaching the development of the word ratchet is as this way of bending and twisting standard American English. Um, for the benefit and the use of African-Americans, right? So African-Americans speak, uh, you know, when we speak English, we tend not to have the same language ideologies, that is ways of thinking about how language is supposed to be used. We don't have the same language ideologies as other people who are speaking the same language as us. Now, on on the one hand, it makes it, you know, it makes it so that we can talk the same language, but I could say something and it means something completely different to a white person than it does to a black person because our language ideologies are different. We don't think about words in the same way. So when I say something is bad, you could be thinking, oh, it's not good. But if a black person overhears me, they could be like, oh, it must be good Hmm. because bad can mean uh, a couple different things, right? It can mean bad as in not good. But we also can think of uh, the way that Michael Jackson, for example, used the word bad. Who's bad, right? And when he was using bad, he wasn't necessarily only talking about what is uh, not good. He was talking about bad as a way of referencing and indexing something that was cool, something that inflected not just an an idea around, um, again, these kind of notions of propriety or what was appropriate but something that was uh, good, um, but kind of informed by what was considered bad. So the word ratchet operates similarly. People can use it and be thinking, oh, you are doing something negative, but it can also be said in a way that reflects on that inherent uh, kind of revolutionary spirit, so to think, of kind of doing good trouble, right? Or making good trouble. And I think that that is ultimately, in a lot of ways, how African-American English operates is this, it it kind of bends the structure of the language such that um, words don't always mean the same thing. um, And the way you use words um, can give them various kinds of meaning. Um, And, Often Black people will reclaim and uh, shift and bend words that were once used to denigrate. Mm. They can be used and switched and reformed and re, uh, recast in ways that um, don't honor those original meanings of what the word is supposed to mean. Black, for example, was once used as a term to denigrate things that were bad or associated with darkness. It is the opposite of light. And then you have Black folks in the 60s and 70s saying Black is beautiful. That is a perfect example of how Black people take a word that is meant to denigrate and twist the meaning, evacuating the word of its previous meanings from standard American English and using it to to recast themselves and Uh, the the word itself is something completely different
1: yeah and it's not but it's not just a repossession of 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 uh sort of like language is it there's a there's an invention as well because I was thinking about bougie yeah that, that you talk about you talk about the word bougie like if you know if you could describe for us in a second what that actually means but that's a totally new word isn't it it's like you're not just repossessing words you're bringing new words to the, to the language and they're kind of I think of them as being sort of diasporic words as well because they're not a combination they are you know they're they're created within the black community you know like twerking like I didn't realize that, that the word twerking was like a it was a it was where it had come out of New Orleans and, and it had been dispersed along with the diaspora after Katrina you know and so I was just you know i was i was really fascinated how you explored that i really liked how you explored that and it made me realize that you know the changes to the language that that that, the african-americans were making they weren't just borrowing and repossessing because i get this feeling with ratchet ratchet's like that ratchet's a place you go to to get away yeah it's like an escapism it's like all types of things but you know but there's a repossession not just a repossession but a sort of uh, you know a contribution as well you're contributing, not just using what's available yeah new stuff yeah
0: in. i mean black folks invent words constantly right ratchet on the one hand i mean arguably you could say that it it is a uh, you bend and retwist the word ratchet to come up yeah. with ratchet right you can and and a lot and bougie is the same like uh bourgeoisie right we don't say bourgeoisie we say bougie right it's a uh, It's in the in the same way that um, and even twerk is to work, twerk, Mm -hmm. you know, like the words themselves become new words and they get it's not just I take a word and then I make it mean something different. It's also this kind of bending of the word. And I like the word bending because I like as we think as I think about the word queer and the way that E. Patrick Johnson uses that term queer, not queer but the southern pronunciation of the same word that his grandmother used to refer to the same thing there's something else that gets added to the word when you bend it when you reshape it and i think it's the reshaping and the bending of standard american english that black folks have done so brilliantly and in many ways of course there's kind of a uh, there's always the kind of invention of words but oftentimes those words can feel new, even if they aren't necessarily new. Yeah. Ratchet is the perfect example. I first heard that word when a mother of my church said the word, you know, when I was in high school and that was, you know, that was 20 years ago. You know what I'm saying? And that was the first time I heard the word. Now, when you get, when you hear the word later and Hurricane Chris says it in 2009, you know, let's get ratchet, let's get ratchet. Whoa. Right. That's, he's not talking about the same thing as my church mother was talking about, like this elder black woman in my church. They're talking about the word, the same word, they're using the same word, and yet it means very different things, right? Or maybe it means the same thing. And either way, uh, they're using the word very differently. And that's what I was interested in in the book, right? Not defining the terms themselves, and not necessarily defining ratchet, but thinking about what the word was doing, right? It's doing something different for my church mother than it's doing for Hurricane Chris. And they may have the exact same definition of the word, okay, but it's doing different things. And I think that's what is at the heart of the project, not defining it, not trying to capture it and make it mean one thing, but thinking about all of the ways that people use it and use the discourses around it, including the word bougie. Now, the word bougie, in a lot of ways, is uh, somewhat the opposite of ratchet. If ratchet is about, um, on the one hand, calling out bad Black behavior, then um, bougie can also be um, a way of marking, uh, and it's funny, I don't even know if they're opposite as much as they're two sides of the same coin, because in some ways, bougie has often been thrown out as an epithet of Black people, especially Black people who seem to be striving above their station or acting as if they are better than other Black people. Now, Ratchet uh, assumes a similar kind of thing, right? You're, you're acting outside of what you should be doing. So both of them have that same kind of uh, potential epithet, like that's embedded within them. But Bougie also Kind of marks a an attempt to uh, act in line with these middle class values and notions of propriety in a way that Ratchet is about bursting out of those same kind of notions of propriety. And then oftentimes, what happens with Bougie is you can try so much to fit within the notions of middle class proper, like middle class behavior that what you end up doing is looking ridiculous because it seems put on. It seems a front. It doesn't seem necessarily authentic. And that notion of authenticity also points back to the way that Black working class life is often considered the most authentic form and version of Blackness, right? So it's the Black, lower class, working class, vision of blackness that that's the version of blackness that gets counted as the most authentic so it's really kind of complicated because ratchet seems to be like what people think black folks are whereas bougie seems to be this way that black folks are trying to push back against what is considered the norm of black behavior particularly it being associated with working classness and but they often are are working kind of uh they're they're still both work in tandem with each other and i think that's why it's so interesting when migo says they're being bad and bougie right like they're in a sense uh acknowledging that oftentimes even though we we try to make them out to seem like they're so different and separate from each other they actually end up being very similar yeah. in a lot of ways yeah i am and i'll uh, in the blog
1: that goes with this episode i i, I... Uh, Sort of reference a link to uh, Migos' YouTube video around Bougie because I think it really articulates really well what it is that you're saying. It demonstrates really well what you're saying. But they're they're both kind of like different, like uh, they're they're both exercising control aren't they these words? Mm -hmm. You know there's Mm -hmm. like sort of control like when you're kind of you know sort of like indulging in too much blackness that's not positive you know perceived to be positive or when you're straying too far they're very much control is a very much controlling but what I really liked as well is how you describe the book as an ethnography of a word and Mm -hmm. I really 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 love that so can you tell us a bit more about that please
0: yeah so ethnography is a practice within uh you know it's a to practice, but it's also a method, right? So it's a uh, socio-linguistic and sociocultural anthropological tool that we use and method that we use to understand the contemporary experiences of people. So when we say something is an ethnographic project, usually what it means is that someone has spent a lot of time in one community, really allowing that community to teach them about the cultural values, the practices, And in the case of someone interested in language like myself, the way that they use words, right? And the way that language comes to matter um, and how it matters in their particular cultural worlds. And so when I think about the book, I often think about it as a really important exercise in thinking critically Um, and deep thinking deeply with the way that one word can have so much potential to shape the everyday lived experiences of people. I was fascinated by the ways that people would talk about how they didn't go to ratchet places or they didn't like ratchet people and they would use the word right to describe certain kinds of people or certain kinds of places and they would talk about how it actually shifted and changed the way that they moved about the world. And I'm like that is intense. And to me that gives a lot. That that's an important thing to sit with and to understand. So I try I follow the word, right? I I sat with the way that the word moved in the field site. It's like if uh, you know, we often talk about doing ethnographies of communities, but I wanted to sit with the word and travel it and to see where it went and how far it went, what people did with it. Um, and I, that's why I like to think of the book as an ethnography of, of a word. Um, because when you trap, when you traffic, uh, when, when a particular word traffics in particular ways and it moves throughout a particular context, it's doing different things depending on where it is situated. And if you follow the word amongst a group of uh, users of that word, then a lot of really interesting kind of conversations can hmm. emerge, especially as the ones that I found while I was doing field work. Um, the way people talked about how they moved around in different places, the the places I was that I actually ended up in, for example, the strip club, where which actually is a ratchet place, right? So I think about the way that that word marks the strip club as a certain kind of place. Then I'm, then I'm sitting in the strip club and the way that the, the, the kind of ethos of the word is animating uh, the particular relations they're in. And then when you look at how ratchet television also has impacts on the way that black lesbians and black queer women are viewed writ large, then a lot of really interesting things are going on. So I, tra- I followed the word and um, the way that people talked about class politics and ended up with a really interesting kind of story about the way that race, gender, sexuality, and po- the politics of respectability play out on the ground in real life. Yeah. Among a group of people who nobody ever talks about. Like, Black queer women are fascinating people, but we rarely are talking about or dealing with their unique experiences in the world yeah and, and it
1: was uh, you know all the time I was reading the book I kept getting this impre- this this um this thing going through my mind for a start it really reminded me of the way a word in English has been used I, I come from a uh, you know I'm English but ethnically I'm like all Irish and I belong to a, a culture we're travelers basically so um there's been a word that we use to for children called chav, and that word chav has been used to denigrate, to mm. denigrate a, a whole subgenre of like sort of you know sort of working class slash benefit class people, and it's kind of like it's the same way. It's like how we repossess the word. Now, I remember when I told my mother I was moving to the country, and <clears throat> sorry, I told my ex husband that I was moving to the country, and he was like, "But it's full of chavs." And my mum was like, "But she's taking the chavs mm. with her." you know and it's, it's kind of like it's kind of the same sort of thing I just keep getting this, this image of a ball being flicked to different cultural players and then kicking it around in different ways until mm-hmm. they pass it on to the next person mm-hmm. that is exactly mm-hmm. um and that's exactly what I I, I I saw but you talk at length uh, um about the the politics of respectability being shaped by words and we have mm-hmm. kind of touching on that. So I, I wonder if you could talk us through how
0: the book talks about that. Yeah, so I follow, you know, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham's uh, kind of notion of, of the politics of respectability. She wrote this book in 1993 about it. Uh, it's called Righteous Discontent. In the book, she's she's kind of trying to understand the way that uh, African-Americans at the turn of the 20th century were really invested in trying to be seen as American citizens, right? They're, they, uh, you know, the Reconstruction Era in the United States is over, and they're now ready to become a part of American life, right? And what they are seeing is the way that they are being represented in popular culture as the antithesis of American, and really, what American at that point means is white. Right. And so they're trying to figure out and I'm and I'm now thinking about the way the way that uh, immigration in the United States marked certain kinds of even European ethnic groups as not white. Right. And so you're not like there are certain groups of white people who weren't even at this time period considered properly white. And so black people are also like, hey, we, we want to be a part of what is included or what you mean when you say American. Now, they were being told that the reason Black folks could not count as American citizens was because they didn't act right, because they didn't look right, because they were out, they were too far away from the norm or what was considered the norm at the time. So what they're trying to do in order to be viewed as respectable subjects is to do the thing, to wear the right clothes, say the right things, worship in the right way, um, become educated, get the same kind of stuff that they see white people doing and achieving and doing those same things, engaging in the creation of art and literature. And in so doing, they hope that this would allow them to enter into the kind of uh, realm of the American citizen. Now, part of what's happening is at the same time, there are a lot of dictates around what it means to be proper, what it means to be middle class, and what it means to be normative, and those things often uh, required the kind of you know, disavowal of one's roots, of who one was, of how you kind of were and where you came from, all of those things. You had to release all of those things to become what white people thought of as the proper or the correct way of being a black person or the correct way of being an American. And what they, you know, what what evolves or what kind of surrounds that desire to assimilate into American Uh, middle-class life, all of the things surrounding that, including the way that we talked to one another, the way that the upper and middle-class Black people of the time uh, taught those working class people how to behave or try to teach those uh, working class or or, uh, underclass, I use that in quotes, to behave, all of those things were really about assimilating. Now, what we now know is that Black people have not ever been able to fully assimilate into American society in the ways that other white Europeans were were. And that is in part because of the, the investment in whiteness as a category. Cheryl Harris talks about the possessive the, the kind of investment and in the kind of thinking about whiteness as property. That's not, That's something that most black people could never get. And I say most because some black people could pass. Yeah. Therefore they could get access to whiteness in this way. But Black folks who were, you know, my complexion, kind of a medium brown color or darker, we were not ever gonna get access to that same uh, kind of whiteness. And so we were always left out and never really considered uh, able to assimilate into um, dominant kind of American culture in the same way. We're always kind of marginal. And the politics of respectability was really an attempt and continues to be an attempt To discipline Black bodies to behave in ways that are assimilationist in spirit and in nature. Stop behaving like a Black person. Behave like a white person, right? And we mean this loosely, this because it shifts and changes, but act like them and then they will treat you like they treat each other, which we know isn't true. You can be a respectable Black person walking around minding your own business and still get treated. As the black person you are, they don't yeah. care, right? Yeah. My PhD doesn't save me from the way that I have gotten treated on account of looking the way that I look. Yeah, it hasn't yeah. saved me. It hasn't saved me yet. And, and also, so, yeah, but also, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're respectable if you behave respectable, because yeah. people still don't necessarily need to, or are you know, white people aren't necessarily going to respect you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but also as well, what, what really struck me is the whole time I was thinking about it is this: it's not just that you're prevented from assimilating. You know, even when sort of like black sort of like uh, sort of uh, counter cultures that run parallel um, establish, there's a kind of attack on those cultures. And when I was thinking with like, I went to New Orleans over the space of fourteen years. I went twice, once once before Katrina and once afterwards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what I'd noticed was this this kind of change in the african-american appearance because of the way that the government uh, just dealt with new orleans Mm -hmm. yes like this massive middle-class black population like the government had had, you know just left them left them to like literally drown you know Mm -hmm. but what i noticed was in the hair you know, whereas before I'd gone there and everyone had looked, you know, like the black people, there'd been a very visible middle class appearance. When I went back next time, you know, it's there. There was a much more investment in sort of like the a kind of more black appearance. And I'm thinking, you know what, I would do the same as well. If you've if you've not only not allowed me to to join, you've you've outcast me and then left me to drown. Well, you know what, stuff the suit. Yeah, stuff the suit. <laughs> you're getting you you're you're, get, you're getting the true meat and. I, I was thinking about that because there's so many things like, you know, because in the book you say um, that Ratchet does things that, that does a lot of things. And I was thinking about Ratchet sort of like, Ratchet's not just a word, is it? It's a, it's a, it's a body shape. It's a hair. It's, it's so many things. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I wondered if you sort of like wanted to talk to us a little bit about, uh, you know, how, how, what Ratchet actually does and how. Yes. Yeah,
0: one of my uh, one of I, I think this is uh, an interview I did with Anna in the book, and I love what she taught. I love how she talks about what ratchet does. She talks about um, the differences. She told me the differences between like a ratchet party and like a bougie party. And, and, and she talks about what ratchet does as opposed to what bougie does. Whereas if you are at a bougie party for black queer women, you're more likely to be it's most likely to be a happy hour. First of all, not a party. So it's a happy hour, and at that happy hour, you need to have a bla- You know, like you have a blazer on. You need to look like you just came from work, right? And um, you know, in in DC, the hairstyles are. Most women have like kind of natural hairstyles, so you're you're less likely to see. Um, you're less likely to see process like hair you're less likely to see women with processed hair in the in in black queer life but let's just say you you see like well-to-do like kind of beautifully manicured locks or you see really not you know people got their full face of makeup on and they look like they just came from work they have their good shoes on they're in their blazers they're looking great they're looking sharp and um they only buy one cocktail right maybe two no, you know they might drink, you know, like a martini or something, you know, some kind, some kind of highball or something, like something very nice and classy, right? And they don't spend too much money because they have bills to pay, you know, they've got, um, they've got homes, um, they they're saving, they're budgeting, right? Um, and they're just the way that they carry themselves around the party. The, the The first question someone is going to ask you is, "Oh, well, what do you do?" You know, they're interested in what you do for for work. Right. And they're interested in who, you know, so it's a network. It ends up the happy hour becomes a networking event, right, where they're telling you about their new business or they're telling you about their side hustle. Right. Whatever. Right. And that's what the function of that party is. The the music isn't particularly uh, loud. You can talk, you can chat. And it's all about appearing and appearing middle class. That's what the whole performance is. That's what the, the event is about. Now, a ratchet party looks very different because a ratchet party, first of all, you're going to be standing in line for about 45 minutes anyway, off the break. You're not going to just be able to walk in off the street and end up in the happy hour. That's not happening. So you're going to be standing in line for 45 minutes where you pay $15, 20 to get into the party. Now you get into the party and you can't hear, okay? Because you, you don't know what's going, the, the the music is too loud. You can't hear. And it's, obviously going to be the ratchet music of the day. And um it's gonna be hard to get a drink, but you're but you know what you're gonna be like, it's it don't worry about it. Just sit me a VIP. I want bottle service. Mm. Right? Now you don't care about how much the bottle costs. It's gonna cost you three or four hundred dollars. Doesn't matter because you want to look good and you want everybody to know you got money. And it's it and you got money to spend. And so the party itself becomes a performance not in um being subdued or not in uh, trying to tell everybody about the work that you do but it's about the flashiness of it and it's about having fun it isn't necessarily relied on nobody cares what you were wearing that day don't nobody care what job you have because nobody's asking you "Ooh, what do you do they're asking if you want to dance they're asking if you want what you want to drink like You don't care how much money you're spending at that party, you don't care what your hair looks like, you don't care what sneakers you got on, you don't care. Those aren't the things that dictate the space. What dictates the space is how hype you're going to get, how drunk you're going to get that night, if you're going to make it home that night. That's what the party's about. So what Ratchet does is it releases you from the pressures of assimilationist practices. It releases you from the need to act in a particular way that's dictated by other people's desires and ideas about what it means to be a proper middle-class subject. Ratchet does not care about your middle-class subjectivity unless you spend in the money. Like are you spending it tonight? I don't care how much money you have unless you unless you spend in it, right? So that's the ethos of ratchet is about excess. It's about going outside of the limits and the notions of what's proper. It's about doing too much. If if ever I could describe what ratchet does is it's too much. Ratchet does the most, the absolute most. And I think that's what people mean when they say that sometimes you just have to get ratchet. Sometimes you have to not care about what other people are saying or doing or how those boxes are restraining you and that's what ratchet does for a lot of people mm. you know what it's so funny when i was reading this because like uh, ratchet kind of entered my sphere
1: of like knowledge through my children about six years ago and they have music they listen to ratchet music and they will leave it in my car and there are times <laughs> where- when and i have a very you know i'm not gonna lie i have a, I have a boy's car i have a boy racer car because i like to, <laughs> like i like to let off yeah and there'll be times sometimes when i don't want to be what i look like i want to go mm-hmm. back to where i come from so i don't want to be a middle middle age posing as middle class academic mm-hmm. i want to go mm-hmm. back to my traveler roots i want to drive the car like i've stolen it and i need the yes. music to do it yes so for me ratchet it's an escapism. And uh, what you're describing is ratchet is the here and now. Mm-hmm. It's not aspirational in in, mm-hmm. in the um, traditional way. It's about sod tomorrow. Let's live for today. Mm-hmm. T- and tomorrow is not guaranteed either.
0: No, it's not. And it, it is it's not guaranteed. It's not necessarily the most important. And who you are and how you are right now is what's most important. Ha- if you are experiencing joy and happiness and and kind of pleasure right now that's what ratchet is about and if you think about it in western society that is dangerous Mm. right that ethos of doing and doing what you feel right now what feels good right now and uh kind of um
1: it celebrates a different
0: type of cultural capital yeah that's what it
1: does it celebrates a different type of cultural capital that is hard to contain mm-hmm. if the cultural capital that you're displaying like you talk about in a bougie party is your investment your mortgage all the stuff that keeps you tied. well this is dangerous because what what the cultural capital you're 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 sort of sharing here is your sexiness it's your it's your hipness it's your ability to read a mood it's your ability to kind of draw people to you it's a different type of cultural capital that that actually is a far rarer a far rarer beast. Anyone can get, anyone can get a mortgage. Yeah. But it's a different thing to be in the middle of the party and everyone wants to be around you. That is mm-hmm. a totally different type of gift. Mm-hmm. That's a totally yeah. different type of capital.
0: Yeah. And you can talk about it. You can definitely talk about it that way. And you can also think about the fact that like anybody can release the, can release themselves from the, from the chains of like proper middle-class behavior, right? Anybody can be like, fuck that, you know? Like all of the things we do to keep the things that we say we are supposed to have, anybody can say, can dispense with those notions that they're supposed to do these things to keep those things and to have these things, right? And it's it's just saying no to the the. Kind of assimilation uh, and for black middle class people, the really the requirement that you comport yourself in a particular way in order to get access to places or um, to things, right? You have to talk a certain way, you can't talk too black, you can't talk too southern, you can't talk to anything, you can't be too much, and that's what Ratchet kind of dispenses with. Like, mm-hmm. I don't care about what. I'm not supposed to do too much of. Ratchet says that you can do too much of it. And then when you go to a ratchet party, everybody is doing a little bit more than themself, like than they than they would be at that at that uh, bougie party. And and I want to point out here that I, you know, because I did an ethnographic project, I would interview someone and they would tell me, "Oh, I don't go to ratchet parties." But then I would be at a ratchet party with them. Okay, so that so even people who said that they didn't do ratchet parties or go to ratchet places or uh, or, oh, I don't do those things. Even the folks who were supposedly bougie would often find themselves at a ratchet party because regardless of what you say about what you don't do, you too often need to go someplace where you can be too much of something yeah. that is outside of the norm of respectability, right? And I think that's what was so interesting about uh, seeing what the word did and how it organized particular places. Because if I was spending too much, or, or if not me, because I didn't do bottle service, I couldn't afford it. But let's say if somebody was doing bottle service, somebody else, and that's too much, and they know damn well they can't afford it, then somebody else was wearing heels that were too high and they knew their feet was going to hurt. Or if somebody was wearing heels that were too high, another person was drinking too much and they knew they couldn't drink that much, right? It was always everybody's too much looks different yeah and that's what's important to keep in mind about what ratchet is it's not something that's so easily definable because what too much is for any one person can look different yeah yeah it's it's the place that you
1: end up at the end of the night no with no intention of being there at the start (laughs) of your night there is a crossover somewhere in the night you know where you know you're going to end up ratchet
0: yeah. yeah, and you know, and and you also say you go into the night knowing that you know I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I'm going anyway. Yeah, I'm just going to take the risk. moment, right? <laughs> it's that feeling. It's like I don't know how this is going to end up, but I'm going anyway. You huh. know, um, and that's but that's it, right? All of us sometimes need to feel that release, and I think that's what's so um, that's what's so interesting about it. And the way that works for Black queer people who are often already considered outside of these notions of propriety, it can be really interesting, right, to see where they end up, so to speak, at the end of the night, and how, they end up, um, how they end up kind of thinking about themselves in the world in relationship to these normative prescriptions about what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to stamp their non-normative subjectivities down in order to fit within what straight people think queer folks do, Mm. um, how they behave, what they look like. Um, for example, I'm thinking, yeah, well, I was just going to give an example of, a of one of my informants who, when she was out and about had wore, you know, wore clothes that were very masculine, um, very masculine of center kind of attire and aesthetic. But then when she talked about how she what she wore when she went to work, she talked about having to tone it down. Right. You know, and I'm like, oh, that makes you know, like, yeah, I understand what that means. Right. It's a toning down. And that's what's always required of black queer folks. Right. To tone it down because you don't want to freak the straight folks out, because if you really went all the way and did you at work, they wouldn't respect you in the same way. Or at least that was the fear
1: yeah i i I i've been reading a lot about heterotopia recently and this is what i kept getting you know that that sort of Foucault notion of heterotopia of a place that everyone knows is there but it's a kind of like a sort of outside of like normal uh, out of the norms now i was just thinking what an important role that that, the ratchet plays but also as well how ratchet is, is presented in so many different types of of cultural memes and like mm-hmm. the whole time i was reading this book i just keep thinking about beyonce yeah beyonce mm-hmm. promotes ratchet in a way i mean she's you know like and she to to an extent she contributes to the the vocabulary as well but what i really got when i was reading this is the sense that that ratchet kind of like um crept up on you over a period of time like it it, it kept kind of resurfacing you know kept yeah. interrupting into your consciousness and i was wondering if you could tell us about the ethnographic moment you experienced at the black uh, queer women's party
0: yeah um i had a lot of these moments the one i shared in the book is about the the one where i ended up in the strip club and um and and i i studied black queer Women's scene spaces right so this book really comes out of just a single chapter of my dissertation because I was interested in Black queer women in D.C., the places they went, how they, where they hung out. Mm-hmm. And as I'm doing my work, people kept saying ratchet. It was everywhere. The, mu- the, the music that people were talking about, it was ratchet. If you described a place, it was ratchet. If you described a person who was working class or, or didn't properly behave right, they were ratchet. It was like, what is happening? I was not interested necessarily in this word or in in it in general. I was just trying to follow the black lesbians, right? I was I was just kind of following them around, and then some. It, like you said, it kept creeping up. And by the time I ended up, uh, I was doing field work at one of the uh, at a black uh, at a black strip club that once a month does a black lesbian party or black queer women's party. I end up at the party and I'm, you know, I'm just doing my ethnographic business. I get a drink and I basically sit on a wall and wallflower for the night, right? I might, uh, you know, sometimes people would walk up to me and kind of engage me in conversation. Or sometimes I would have these moments where, um, where people would like, we would talk and we would end up having these really deep, profound conversations about their, their worlds and about the way Um, that their life was kind of shown, you know, how it was happening. It was fascinating being an ethnographer and being in space with people. It was fascinating the kind of ways that people opened up to you when you said you were researching Black lesbians. But in this particular moment, and I think this is the one that I talk about in the book, where I talk about being at a party and this song comes on, Chief Keef's I Don't Like comes on. And the song is about um all of the things that Chief Keef and other folks in the song don't like and they particularly don't like folks who are fake they don't like people who uh, are liars or say something about you behind their back or they snitch right they tell the authorities stuff that you that you're into or that you're doing um and who are otherwise just fake or bougie they don't like these people right And so in the song, um, there's a there's a um, uh, Kanye West is featured in the song and in the song he does this really interesting thing where he's he ends up talking about uh, black lesbians right he talks about he says, you know, they well in the in that particular lyric he's talking about how girls he says girls kissing girls, because it's hot right and he talked and he's and he's talking about this kind of fake kind of um girl on girl kissing in public kind of thing that happens oftentimes in heterosexual spaces where two women end up kissing each other on the dance floor or something but they do so as a means of appearing to be more sexually available Con- you know in a very contradictory kind of way of being more sexually available to men or being more um Uh, kind of like more sexually lascivious or more sexually experimental right that's their way of showing men that they're into quote different things and they're not really gay they're not really lesbians and they may not actually even be bisexual they're just doing it because it's hot right and that's what kanye is kind of Uh referencing and then he says um girls kissing girls because it's hot right But unless they use a strap on, then they're not dyke. So what he's at that point kind of referencing is the fact that unless they're actually having sex with women, right? Unless they're actually having sex using a phallus, in this case, a dildo, to penetrate their partner and actually have sex with that person, then they're not actually into each other, right? This kind of like fake kissing is one thing, but actually engaging in sexual practice with a woman because you want to, that's a completely different thing. Now, when you read it, you could be like, or when you listen to it, you could definitely interpret it as like, how dare Kanye West tell Black lesbians what they should or should not do, or how, you know, what it looked like. You can definitely read it in that way, but I can't read it that way because of the moment that I had at the strip club, where when this song came on, every Black lesbian queer woman in the room was singing the lyrics uh like were repeating these lyrics as loud as they possibly could and to the point where the dj turned kanye's voice off completely Uh and all you heard were a couple hundred black lesbian queer women even the strippers on the pole stop and say you know but unless they use a strap on then they not dykes they ain't about that life, they ain't about that life. We, you know, we hanging out the window, it's about to be a Suge night, And like, you're like, oh my God, right? Like, this was not about Kanye West and whether or not he thought certain kinds of women were properly lesbian or whatnot, had nothing to do with Kanye West. But what he, what he offers in that line and what a lot of hip hop offers is an opportunity for Black lesbians, Black queer women to see themselves in a way that's really hard to see in these spaces, and especially in like a uh, strip club, which you could think of as kind of a temple to black uh, heterosexual heteropatriarchy, right? You think of these places as places that aren't about women's pleasure, but about men's pleasure and their fantasy world. And yet here are a bunch of black lesbians who are here for their fantasy or here about their desires. And they are rapping these lyrics. And they're saying that unless you are actually about this life about the life of black lesbianism about black queer life then you're not real you're fake you're faking it. And I loved it I loved that moment and I loved um, thinking about the way that when you a lot of times when people approach hip hop they sometimes do it absent thinking about those particular contexts where other folks might be reading, might be um, experiencing or reinterpreting hip hop lyrics that don't match up with the way that it might feel or sound when you're riding in your car and listening to it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, so the references that you use to hip hop, like I like hip hop anyway, but I mean, I mean, I like it because there's so, there's so many levels of it is it's, yeah. like, it's, it's, it's like a music for all times isn't it it's a music it's a music mm-hmm. for driving it's it's incredibly like well observed a lot of the time and so Kanye really goes there around lesbians right and this is not once or twice he mentioned he's referencing lesbians in the songs you mm-hmm. Know? Mm-hmm. He, he's on it you know yeah. um so uh right okay so how did you how did you sample your participants because obviously this is an ethnography yeah how did you sample them
0: um so you know, the, the way that, you know, methodologically, the way that I found these women was primarily, I, I ended up, I was lucky because the project kind of um, got tweeted. I, I, you know, I made a website where people could email me and sign up, and I tweeted about it, and somebody retweeted it, and it got retweeted a bunch of times, and so I ended up getting the first batch of respondents from Um, people who were in the city who saw the tweet and got in touch with me. I also used uh, uh, kind of a a snowball sampling effect. So people would tell me like, oh, you should talk to such and such. Now, when it came to the interviews that I conducted with Black queer women who created Scene Space, I just went to the parties and asked them if I could talk to them. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was at every party at the beginning. I would be the first one in there. I would end up being able to chat with and talk with the promoters or the people who organized the parties. And then I was able to develop relationships with them that they would sit down later and talk with me about how they created space, how they formulated the, how they came up, like why host the party at the strip club, right? Like I was able to ask them these kinds of questions because I was just there at all of the parties for like four years straight. So they saw me, they knew me and eventually they got comfortable with sitting and chatting with me. And then they would share that information with other folks. But because I was on the scene for so long, I was able to really sit down and chat with people who I would often see at the parties and clubs. I'd be like, hey, can I, like, would you be up for an interview? And then there were a host of informal kind of conversations that I had with women. The 40 that I mentioned are people who I sat down with and had formal interviews, but there were I want to say twice as many informal conversations, if not more, right, Uh, informal conversations that I had with women while I was at the party, um, you know, or while I was at the event. And these are countless. And I was always open and clear about what I was doing. I was a PhD student. I was doing research in Black queer women in D.C. Because everybody wants to know what you do it was a great way for me especially at like bougie middle-class parties to be like oh what do you do well actually I'm a researcher studying black queer life and you know and black queer women in DC oh let me tell you right so it ended up being really um interesting and a fruitful set of conversations but yeah most of the women that I I did not know most of the women found me which was Uh great and then there were plenty of people who were snowballed and some folks who um, who I knew, uh, who I was able to chat with, but it was ended up being really fruitful. And I had a lot of people who, after the interview, they wanted me, they wanted their friend to come and also talk to me. So what that ended up doing was meaning that the sample that I had of formal interviews ended up being primarily middle class and upper class women, because those were the folks who, oh, you should talk to my friend. So it was, ended up being all these women who would be considered, quote, bougie. Yeah, ended up making up the majority of my sample. So I talk about that, right? I talk about the way that the sample is in many ways skewed because I only talked to middle, I talked primarily rather to middle class and upwardly mobile women who at, and I say upwardly mobile because they may have come from working class uh, families, but they had attained some, a, a different kind of class status. And so Uh, it was interesting that those ended up being the majority of the women that I spoke to, but in a lot of ways that mirrored um, the population of people in Washington, D.C. The majority, you know, it's one of the few cities and metropolitan areas where there is a huge preponderance, like a high preponderance of black middle class people. So the sample that I have uh, ends up mirroring in a lot of ways the way that black middle class life really ends up, uh, being the kind of primary organizing feature of, of Washington, D.C., very large.
1: And I think it was really important. What I really got from that is that your, your, your insider positionality was really important. But, and you know, I, I'm getting to the point where I don't think anyone apart from insiders should do research because it, it's the only way that you can reach populations that you can't access through a gatekeeper. I mean, there is no gatekeeper to, to sort of like black, bougie queer women no you You have
0: to you have to know them because they're not letting just anybody in and they're not going to sit down and chat with just anybody because it's not safe to do so no you know it's not um so the the folks that i talk to yeah i mean you're not going to get access to these women unless unless you get kind of a amen from somebody else yeah so i think in a lot of ways my insider position helped me tremendously and it also radically shaped the way that I came to the work and how I analyzed it ultimately.
1: Mm. And what the impression I got as well, like I don't know what your thesis question was, but what I got was a seeking of knowledge rather than seeking of
0: an answer. Absolutely. As an ethnographer, we're trained right to follow the inform, like follow our informants, follow our subjects and let them dictate to us what are uh, what, what actually is there, right? Yeah. If you kind of go in, I mean, you go in obviously with a question because we're scientists, but you go in asking a broad question and seeing what happens as a result. I was interested in the, socio, the sociospatial practice and linguistic practices of Black queer women. What I came out with was this book about the word ratchet. I had no idea when I started this project, that class politics would play such an important part in the way that Black queer women in D.C. were organizing their lives. I had no idea. Uh And so I ended up having to become an expert on class politics because I had no idea that was a thing. I didn't really expect, and, and I'm still to this day, flabbergasted that Black queer women who I think of as already situated outside of the realm of the notions of propriety would be so invested in being considered proper middle-class subjects. I'm like, but nobody thinks of you as proper anyway, so why are you so invested in doing that? That's whack anyway. Why are you so invested in that? But they are because they want to be included. They want a seat at the table And certain kinds of Black subjects aren't allowed at the table so they want to be at the table and what does it mean to want to be at the table what do you have to give up what do you have to do in order to be seen as the kind of black queer person that's included and that ended up being really the main thrust of this particular kind of this particular book there are certain ways that you have to behave if you want to be a black middle-class queer subject who gets to have a seat at the table yeah yeah but
1: also it's what you've got to invite you've got to accept what offer whatever offer gets you into the table i.e Kanye. you know so i was thinking about the other places that you talk about um uh, the the spaces that you talk about in terms of the tv program so you talk about is it uh, district heat or distinct heat Yeah, yeah yeah so can you give us like a sort of like overview of that and how you know and how now like sort of like women were outed in that context
0: So, um, so I think you're talking about the show district heat, right, which is, which is a YouTube show that was, um, I actually think it's still running um, by Shinovia McKenzie, Mm -hmm. uh, in DC, and it's, it's, it's centered on the lives and experiences of black queer women in DC. Now it is what I, what I think a lot of my informants also described as Ratchet TV. It is, uh, within the realm of kind of melodrama, like it's, a crime drama, melodrama. Okay. So it's every episode is doing the most um there are at least one to two sex scenes pretty explicit sex scenes in every single show and every single episode and this show features um kind of a a mix of uh, high femme black lesbians and very masculine presenting masculine of center lesbians and it pretty much Focuses on their uh, love lives and the 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 kind of um, dramatic crime related lives that they live. Now there was other there was there was also another uh, show um, called Sky's the Limit that also centered on the lives of Black lesbian and queer women in DC. And it was a very different show. Sky's the Limit um, was a show that didn't um, it was somewhat of a melodrama but it was a show that centered on the life of this young um Howard University educated uh young black girl trying to kind of come come to her own like kind of a coming of age story of a young adult who just graduated from college and wanted to be a writer and very different show very, very different show. Very different set of politics. I would argue, and um, one I would argue is way more bougie, and huh. and one is way more ratchet. And it's really interesting to see how each show kind of frames black female sexuality, how it frames um, and is situated within broader sets of politics around class. And uh, yeah, they were both really interesting shows. Whereas uh but and, but I, but i often but what i often thought was that sky's the limit w- was more ready and more within the realm of my of kind of my understanding of what would end up on a prime time mm. tele like it was ready it was with a little bit polish that script i would see on hb like on hbo yeah you will never see or. I cannot imagine seeing, uh, District Heat in that same way, and it's not because of the quality, but it's because people are not ready to see. And I, also, I don't say I want to say people aren't ready, but I think it's really it's much harder to make the case that that form of black lesbian life is is one that people are ready to see writ large, like that are ready to see kind of outside of the context of black lesbian life. I don't know if people are really interested in seeing those kinds of fantasy or fictiony tales of black lesbians because they imagine us either in a very homonormative way to be just like them and just would, you know, we just went to Howard. Like there's just, that's really it, but we're just like straights or they imagine like, um, or they imagine like, what is the case for uh, for District Heat? They imagine all of us are like gang, gangsters or either high femme or super masculine. They imagine we're one or the other and neither of which is really true, right? And so I think it's really interesting to see how each show kind of in some ways dispenses with notions of uh, of what is kind of normative or, For queer subjects, especially in the case of Sky's the Limit, um, but also what's kind of class appropriate for um, kind of this vision of um, Black lesbian life. So I really loved both shows, but both reveal different sets of kind of investments Mm. in representing Black lesbian life. And I I would love to see somebody do a rendition of District Heat on on like on Showtime next to the L word, right? I would think it would be fantastic. But if you place the L word next to District Heat, you would think that all black lesbians are this way. Yeah, and that's what I think a lot of people fear is that when you see black people and you see black lesbians, like oh, people are gonna think all of us are this way. Necessarily think that, and I think that it's possible that some people might read it in that way. But I also think that folks who do that thing where they say, Oh, black people, these black people are going to represent all of us, are really buying into that assimilationist, yeah. racist idea that black people, one black person, represents all of us. They don't, it's fine. I don't find anything wrong with District Heat. I think other people would find things wrong with District Heat, and therefore. It doesn't fit the black middle class notions of propriety of what we think the best version of black lesbianism should be and the way it should be represented in public. But I like District Heat not because it was because it wasn't fancy, because it wasn't uh, because it displayed this kind of fantasy world, because it dealt with sex and it wasn't sanitized for, cons- for proper consumption, but because it it felt. Authentic. And I think there's an authenticity that is in some ways um, rooted in the too much, right? You described w- like getting in your car and wanting to just drive like you did back in the day, mm-hmm. right? And some would argue that's probably the most authentic version of yourself, or you felt most like yourself in that Definitely. moment. And that's when you want to return back to. And in some ways, I think. There are ways that Ratchet can do that for us and show us the most basic regular forms of ourselves. And I I wanna see, I wanna see something like District Heat on TV because I think that we oftentimes and too often sanitize images of black queer life so that we 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 make it seem like the only way you can be black and queer in public is if you do so as an upright you know, middle-class, bougie subject. That's the only way you're gonna get a seat at the table. But I dispense with that, because I don't think even those bougie representations of Black queer folk are accurate, or fully capture who I am, or who the people that I interviewed are.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I I really got that. The more that I was reading your book, like, I have this fancy that if I got really rich, I'd run away to Airbnb and not come back. Now, if I get really rich, I'm going to run away to Ratchet and not come back. (laughs) (laughs) You actually made me feel like, it made me feel really optimistic that somewhere there are people that are partying and living life to the extreme and just being themselves and being free and unrestricted and not giving not giving a damn and it gave me hope. Yes. Hope. I was so pleased to think out there somewhere people are still living life the way it's supposed to be lived. Um so my final question for you is who did you write this book for? It's an awesome book by the way. If you you know listening, <laughs> go stop what you're doing now Go, find the book. Yeah. Um <laughs> did you write
0: it for? I and I mean this with I mean this uh, wholeheartedly. I wrote this for my little one because I want my little one to be able to be ratchet and as bougie as possible at all times, both at the same time. I want everybody to feel like, especially this little one, to feel like unrestricted by dictates Mm -hmm. of what it means to be proper and, and, uh, you know, just a proper, like, right? Like authenticity lives in you and it's of you and it's what you do. It ain't got nothing to do with people say what you're supposed to do. And that's what I want for my little one. And I want the little one to know that, um, you know, so many of us have tampered down who we want to be and who we end up being because of what other people tell us we're supposed to do. And there's real freedom in living in excess sometimes. Yeah, I love that. Uh, And I think it's good for us to just live and be in the moment. And I think it's really difficult for especially Black folks um, to be, to just be, you know, because we are often told that the way we are is not good enough. So I want this little one to know that no matter what, they're good enough and they're just fine being how they want to be. And um, yeah, and that's what I wrote it for. And I yeah, I, I hope that if you end up getting a copy of it, that you send me a send me a message and let me know how you read it, how you felt when you read it, um, because it was liberating to write it. And I felt like it was a true a statement and testament to the veracity, the aliveness of Black queer folk, especially those folks in DC. So um, I'm forever grateful to the folks who sat down and talked with me and shared their stories with me.
1: So, just one last thing can you just tell us who you are and who the book is? Uh, what the book's called, sorry.
0: So, the book is called The Black Queer Work of Ratchet Race, Gender, Sexuality, and the Anti Politics of Respectability. And I am Dr. Nikki Lane.
1: It's edited by, uh, it's, it's um oh, authored by, not authored. Uh, published,
0: yeah, yeah, published by Palgrave yeah. <laughs> So
1: I'm too excited now, two, two <laughs> too excited by the whole notion of ratchet. Thank you so much.